Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier, Part 3, Korean Drama, Chapter 4, Romantic Call. She wanted to run on the beach with me, had on her kicks and sweats and pretty smile. Nah, I told her, not happening. But she followed me out of Baraga and into the sand. It was late night. I gestured to her, making the shape of a pregnant belly. She laughed and held up two fingers to show me that the twins were tiny. How many months? I asked in Japanese. Ni, she answered, meaning two. Do yoga, I told her. When I turned to start my run, she walked behind me. I sped up to see what she would do next. She just kept walking my way, but she did not run because I told her not to. This was something simple that I loved about her. I ran back to her, which made her smile widen and then burst. Instead of jogging, I worked out on the beach. She did yoga, sitting in the sand beside me, under the moonlight. We were underwater for sunrise, swimming with warm waves that were cold just minutes ago. Her body moved smoothly like a sea creature, and I liked that she was unafraid of the fish and the depth of the sea. We came up for air, wiping water from our faces and both gasping at the pink sky. She dived back under, and I followed her, of course. On the shore, she collected shells. When the sky pink turned yellow and then slowly became white, I wrapped her in a huge towel and carried her back to the motel. It was Ramadan, and this was the most that I could do. It was enough. Our nights had each been passionate. No one could have peeled us apart. In fact, each night was better than the night before, and we were completely happy. In my room, I showered and slept. When I I woke, I decided to read Quran and remain in my room for the daylight hours. Reading Quran was good for me. To do so, I had to clear my mind of the maze it had created around my wife's family situation. Two hours into the sacred pages, I eased the book closed. Thoughts began to emerge. I wondered why, even with a book of guidance, as meaningful and clear as the Quran, everywhere in the world there seemed to be so much confusion. The simplest everyday matters of man and woman were spelled out in these pages, yet it seemed clear that most men did not want guidance, and definitely not instructions. Each man wanted to live his life his own way, as though his way could ever be superior to the path Allah created for all. And the world was divided into separate empires, it seemed, without global translation to lead us all to any one consensus. When I called Akimi's room, her line was busy. That brought my mind back to May's mode. Who was she talking with? She had agreed not to phone Jasna until we arrived in the U.S. Of course, she would never call Nakamura and tip him off that the two of us were here in Korea. Maybe she was speaking to her aunt, Sun Yoon. 
I persuaded myself. No problem. The clock read 4.30 p.m. I remembered I had to contact Professor Dong Hua. I phoned him. Yumasio, he answered his phone. It's Akimi's husband, I said. He chuckled. Agasmida, he said, and then continued. Oh, yes, I understand. Sorry. You caught me right between classes. Excellent timing. Uh, we're all set for tomorrow. I spoke to my son, Bay. He's a doctor at Busan University Hospital. It seems that there is no reason for her father and her to be tested at the same time. So, Jung-ho is up there right now submitting his sample. Akimi can go tomorrow morning if you agree. My wife, Sun Yoon, will meet you two there, and she and Akimi can spend the weekend together. Sounds aight, I said, agreeing, but already missing my wife, and she hadn't even gone anywhere yet. I'd like to invite you to come up to visit the university tomorrow. Fridays are slow on campus. I'll show you around, he offered. Automatically, I thought he was inviting me up there to make sure our wives would be alone. I didn't sweat it. In a short time, he would find out that I'm a man of my word. After writing down all the info for the hospital and doctor and the college, I hung up. I called my wife's room. Her phone was still busy. I grabbed my keys, shot out, and down to her. When I walked through the door, she was lying down talking in Japanese. She was relaxed and smiling. Who are you talking to? I gestured and asked her. Take, she said, handing me the phone. Yeah, what's up? I said calmly. Who's this? Ryoshi, the raspy, sweet voice responded softly. Chiasa, I said slowly and stupidly, smiling naturally, but then I found myself not saying anything at all. Akimi called me. She seems to like me, Chiasa said. How about you, I said. How about me, what, she asked. Do you like her, too? Or is she bothering you, I asked. She's very easy to love, and I have her diary, remember? So it feels like we are close. Did you tell Akimi that you have it? I asked Chiasa. No, my client didn't authorize me to do that. She offered a clever reply. Your client told you to introduce yourself to my wife. Say anything that you want to say. Remember? True, she paused. Sometimes waiting for a guy to make the first move is like waiting for spring to come again in the summer season, she said softly. It was her indirect challenge to me. I understood and I felt it. Of course I felt it, but could I give myself permission to think about Chiasa and care for her, to bring her to me in the middle of the storm where me and my first wife now stood? Could I love Chiasa while loving my wife so intensely and to an extreme? Could I have Chiasa? Should I have her? 
Or was I like a man who, after the greatest five-course meal, still requests the pecan pie for dessert? And she was Chiasa, a whole woman, not a half. She could not be rightly compared to dessert. She is a separate five-course meal. Or maybe even seven, I thought to myself. It must be hard for you to speak, Ryoshi. Let's talk after sunset when our fast is finished for the day, she said. And my heart moved. Was Chiasa actually still fasting? Are you fasting still, Chiasa? I asked her. You said one month. It hasn't been one month yet. I always do what I say, she answered softly. Her words rocked me inside. Let me speak to your wife, she said. I'll talk to you tonight. Can I call you late? Around 11, I asked. Sure, she said. I handed Akimi the phone. Akimi began speaking to Chiasa while her eyes were analyzing my every gesture and penetrating through my thoughts too, perhaps. They were big, pretty, curious eyes, not filled with accusations. I took the run alone from the Hyundai to Guangangni. As the sun began to set, I knew it was an opportunity I had to grab. I wouldn't be jogging on my way to Brooklyn, on my Brooklyn blocks, or in my new neighborhood in Queens either. Even if I did, I would never get in New York City what I had this moment in Busan, Korea. The blue sea, the gold, sand, the scent and sound of the ocean, or especially the peace. The banana vendor greeted me warmly. It was only his third time seeing me, but now it seemed like he expected me to appear at sunset each evening. After breaking fast with fruit and water, I decided to walk back. I had to get my mind right before I spoke to Chiasa. She had taken me by surprise earlier. I wouldn't let it happen again. Akimi had a sweet tooth. She stood, wide-eyed, all green and blue tonight, a blue silk scarf covering her hair, which she had wrapped in a thick bun in the back. It poked out like she was a Rasta girl. She wore blue jeans and a mini dress. The army green dress covered her arms and hips. Her toenails were blue stars covered with a heavy coat of clear polish. They glistened in her sandals. She wanted a scoop of everything. I knew she couldn't eat it all, so I didn't order none for myself. We sat in the corner. Playfully, she dipped a caramel candy square into her cream and smeared it on my lips. When I smiled, she said, Hansamu. I ate one of her caramel candies and fed her creams, too. The way she sucked on the spoon and the soft candy squares, she was steady, seducing me. Although I didn't know why, in the ice cream parlor, I wondered if eating ice cream for dinner could be considered one of those cravings I read about in the pregnancy book I'd perused in the bookstore, or if it was just regular for her. On the way out, she bought colorful candy sticks and a bag of M&Ms. I was smart enough to know that for Akimi, those could be snacks or hair ornaments or part of a sweet art project. Walking, wrapped in the warm wind, once we got back to the beach, 
We watched a woman making a massive sand sculpture under the glare of the night lights. Akimi intently watched the artist at work, fascinated by her sand sea turtle. I thought about Akimi's live sea turtles in her Japanese bedroom. Maybe she was thinking the same. Around 10 minutes before 11, I eased back to Badaga with my wife close behind me. In Akimi's room, I removed my kicks before I put down our few bags containing her candies and other items that we had purchased. I looked at the new curtain she had hung in the motel window. Studying it, I saw that she had taken a few yards of some white linen that she had purchased just the other day and drawn beautiful pictures inside of measured squares. On closer look, I was amazed at this curtain, where each square revealed pieces of our journey from Japan to Korea in intricate drawings. I stood stuck there for some seconds before I turned to jump back into my kicks and head to my room to make the call. Akimi stepped in front of her door, leaned against it, and smiled. She began to speak to me in soft-spoken Korean, which could only be to keep me spellbound by the music of her language because I couldn't know the meaning of even one of her words. Move, girl, I told her. I'm leaving. I'll be back. She bowed her head to me. I unwrapped her silk scarf and her black hair fell over her shoulders. She knew how much I liked when she wrapped up and how much I enjoyed unwrapping her. She leaned up and rocked back and forth, teasing me some. I understood what was happening and I planned to control the action with both women this time, Akimi and Chiasa. She unsnapped her jeans and began to remove them, first with her hands and then with her feet. It was two minutes to eleven. I turned and walked over to the phone on her desk. Call Chiasa, I told her. She stared into me before she walked over and began pressing the buttons. Take, she said, extending her arm, the phone dangling on her fingertips. I took it and sat in the rolling chair behind her desk with my back to Akimi's seductions. Ryoshi, Chiasa answered. Chiasa, I responded. Konbanwa, I gave her the greeting. I just walked into my house, she said, sounding as though she may have flown up the stairs to receive my call. Oh, yeah? Where were you? I asked her calmly. Everywhere. I had to buy some supplies for flight school. I was thinking about going to the stables in Nagano this weekend to ride Koinichi. Koinichi, I repeated. My pretty Arabian mare, remember, she asked. She knew I could not forget her beautiful creature with the mysterious eyes and long jet black tail and white socks. I also was learning that different women have different ways of seducing. Chiasa seduced me with the adventures of her fearless and fire-filled life. As I sat, memories of her were easing out of storage and into my mind's eye like a slideshow. Yeah, of course... I remember, I said sincerely. Listen, as I said that one word, Akimi came behind me and slipped her hands through the neck of my white tee and began caressing my bare skin lightly. Hi, Chiasa said, urging me on. 
There's a few things we got to take care of, I told her. I'll speak on the business first because I don't want to mix things up. Okay, I won't, she asked to say. Won't what? Now my wife was licking my ear, her hair flowing down onto my chest. I won't mix it up, she asked to say softly. Good. Buy a small duffel and put all of my things inside, I told her. Akimi tossed her legs over the chair and was now sitting in my lap, facing me. She pressed her face against my skin, the other side from where I held the phone to my ear. Remember I mentioned to you about the vending machines? Hi, Chiasa said. I need you to go and get that information for me. I want to know the names of the top five vending companies, but especially the ones that are vending unusual items like sneakers. I need all the contact information. Call them up and see if they do business overseas, especially in the U.S. or in any country in Northern Africa. Also, see if they have any execs that speak English. I got it, Chiasa said. Ryoshi, why are you breathing so hard? Are you working out while while we're on the phone? Something like that, I said, as I eased my hand onto the outside of my wife's panties. Now, Akimi was breathing hard. I eased my hands around her. Chiasa, hold on a minute, I told her. Oh, I'll call you back. Now the phone was lying on the floor. I bit my wife's lip to punish her, but she liked it a lot. I felt her I felt her gushing onto my hands. I stood up with her in my arms and carried her to the bed. Gently I laid her down and stood over her. Bad girl. You're a bad girl, I scolded her. I found myself on top of her. Oh Allah, what a feeling. The whole time we're making love, she was speaking Korean to me, saying only Allah knows what, but driving me out of my mind. We were biting each other in selected places. When I rolled off, still holding her by her petite waist, her skin was covered with sexy sweat. I looked at her. She smiled. I grabbed her up again and hugged her tight, a feeling so good, this good, had to be a problem and could cause many men to lose their lives. Never fuck with another man's wife. That's my advice to all men in every empire. Chapter 5 Test Sun Yoon is tall and slim and quietly attractive. Her eyes are filled with vulnerability and she seemed like she should have a fragile sticker posted somewhere on her body. Professor Dong Hua showed up to the hospital stitched to her side as though he were there to hold her up. Dressed in pale pink linen and sling back leather shoes, Sun Yoon wore a tight petite white sweater with small pearls on it and carried a Christian Dior purse. Her eyes livened up when she saw Akimi and me approaching down the hospital hallway. The closer we got to her and her husband, the more her eyes began to dance and her posture strengthened. She must have been filled with doubt about whether or not we'd show up, but I suspected her doubt was mainly because she couldn't understand Akimi's relationship to me. From all that I had learned this week in South Korea, I was sure that her own people couldn't understand her relationship with her husband either, so I called it even. 
Anyongo Sayo, Akimi and I both said. Akimi bowed. You came, the professor said, smiling. Of course, I answered. The women spoke softly to one another, as Professor Donghua spoke with me. The doctor will be out in a moment. The whole process, the whole procedure, takes less than three minutes. Is it a male or a female? Eh? The doctor, I asked. Oh, he's a good friend of mine, my senior from undergraduate, Donghua said. It would be better for my wife to have a female doctor, I told him. Don't misunderstand. It's a simple test. There is no undressing or internal examination. It involves a Q-tip, and maybe they'll draw blood from her arm, he assured me. How long before we get the results, I asked. I don't know what the standard turnaround time is on this kind of thing, but I've already asked my sunbay to place a special rush on it for me. He will. Thank you, and that's good. Akimi and I won't be able to stay in Korea for long just waiting on the results. You understand that, right? I understand, but since we are planning to keep this relationship, you and and Akimi will know the results as soon as we do, and we will know how to contact you, yes? That's the agreement, I said, smiling slightly at his need to repeat things we'd already confirmed. It was finished, swiftly. Akimi stood in the hallway in her thin, beige cotton Benetton dress and leather-heeled sandals, holding her LV cruiser bag, which lay lightly on her shoulder because she was only carrying two days' worth of clothing. Her hair was wrapped in a beige silk scarf, and her eyes were lingering on me as I said, Take care. I'll call you. She spoke something to her aunt and uncle. Dong Hua answered her. She spoke again. I didn't know what words they were exchanging. Akimi wants to come back to you tonight. She doesn't want to sleep over. Dong Hua sounded disappointed. I looked at Akimi. Come here, I told her. She came and returned for privacy. I'll come to you tonight. Don't worry, I promised. Yakusuko, she asked, whispering in Japanese. Hi, I smiled. It's okay. She'll stay over, I told the professor. Akimi smiled and apologized to her aunt three times before they left together. Akimi doesn't know what the lab test was for, does she? The professor asked as we were heading to his car in the parking garage of the hospital. No, I answered. Do you mind if I ask you what you told her about coming to the hospital? He said, opening his car door. I told her tomorrow me and you hospital take test. That's it, he asked? Yeah, I said. What did she say, the professor asked. Hi, I told him. I only have one lecture today. We are making it just on time, the professor said as his small black Hyundai powered up to pull up seven steep winding hills onto the Busan University campus. On the low, universities are always amazing to me. My own father, a PhD graduate, graduated from three universities. The University of Khartoum in Sudan, the Sorbonne University in Paris, France, and Columbia University in Harlem, New York. On my first date with Akimi, we went to Columbia University and chilled there at night on the lit-up campus. Maybe it was the architecture, the design and layout of the place, or maybe it was because it seemed like a city of youth who were all vying to learn something powerful and do something great. Or maybe it was as simple as 
all of the athletic fields, gyms, and stadiums. Colleges are the opposite of public schools and high schools. I think, at least as far as New York goes, it seemed like everybody going to public school was going by force and for no other reason. College flipped the script. You had to want to go there and had to prove it by paying a heap of paper. And even if you really wanted it and were poised to pay for it, you might still get rejected. I like that. Earning my way in, working to stay in, and ending up with something useful in the end, hopefully. Let's go, Professor Danghua said. There were about 57 students in his class, and they were all seated before we rolled in. He pointed to his seat up front with his head. I opted to push all the way up top to the last row. As I climbed the few wide steps, all heads turned to stare. I faced the direction I was moving in. Used to it by now. Japanese ignore, Koreans stare. I sat. Notebooks and pens were out, and Professor Dong Hua started speaking like there was not one second to waste. His deep, Korean melody filled up the small lecture hall and bounced off the walls. I pulled out my small notebook and my mind drifted around the globe, into the Ghazali's basement, then out to the streets of Brooklyn, then into my sensei's Brooklyn dojo, and out to home court for the Hustlers League. I thought of Amir and Chris and even Marty Bookbinder. I thought Marty would be in awe of both the Japanese and Korean bookstores I had visited, and more in awe of their inventory. Over a game of chess, when I got back, inshallah, and when I wasn't stressed, I would tell him how you could buy and read books all night in Japan, and how in Korea, the entire family and neighborhood, babies and all, pile up in bookstores and stay there for hours doing everything including having a full meal in the bookstore restaurants. I would share with him how nobody had to beg the Asians to visit the bookstore to buy books to think and learn. It was part of their lifestyle. Then my mind moved to Sun Yoon's apartment, my wife and how she was feeling and what she was eating and drinking, and what was she thinking about right then when I was thinking about her. I thought about what she was observing when she saw Sun Yoon. Did she see gestures similar to what she had seen in her mother, or hear Sun Yoon use similar words and phrases? Uma doesn't have a sister. It would be bugged out, I think, to see two Umas seated side by side, And then I smiled and said to myself, impossible. Then I thought of my southern Sudanese grandfather, his life, thoughts, words, and criticisms. Would he think that a university was a good place? He had never been to one, never studied under any professor or professionals, yet he was the wisest man I knew. And it was his sperm that gave rise to my own father. 
I thought about whether my southern Sudanese grandfather would say that a university is the exact place that changes a man's thinking under the guise of making him strong and knowledgeable while actually making him a weak, dependent servant to a deceitful and lesser master. Yes, that's exactly what he would say, I smiled. I appreciated the way both my father and grandfather allowed me to visit them these days, to go inside their thoughts and feelings and emerge with their expressions. My mind switched to the streets of Tokyo and down the narrow streets of crazy-ass Harajuku and through those blocks that led to Yoyogi Park, a forest filled with secrets. A stone path led me to the doorstep of Chiasa, the shoes lined up outside. Could I climb into her heart and mind and search her feelings and thoughts the way I did with my father and grandfather? What about my heart and thoughts? The truth was, Chiasa was the only person in this world who made me feel truly guilty. Before her, guilt was mostly unknown to me. Why? I asked myself. I felt guilty first for seeing Chiasa on the plane. I felt guilty for being with her. Guilty for allowing her to use up all her time on me. Guilty for feeling close to her too fast. Guilty for loving her. Guilty for not loving her. And guilty for arousing her and knowing it. And leaving her alone with a boiling heart and fire in her bones. I felt guilty for wanting her for myself and guilty for feeling like fighting to keep her from any other man and guilty for coveting her virginity and for feeling a love that led to an urge for me to push up inside of her. Fuck it. When it came to Chiasa, I was just guilty, period. And now I'm clear. I was clear before, then I got lost. Now I'm clear again. If I wanted to keep Chiasa close, I had to first speak with my wife clearly and honestly. I had to introduce them face to face. I knew I could never allow any woman to rock my first love. Akimi, who I still love sincerely, deeply and strongly, and who I would love and secure forever, as long as Allah allowed me life. My wife would have to agree. If not, I would let it burn and let Chiasa go. If we two, then three, were in harmony, I'd have to contact and confront Chiasa's father. If he agreed, I'd simply marry Chiasa. She would become my second wife. I smiled. Yes, I would marry her easily, love her, work hard for her, fight for her, kill for her, cherish her, and give her babies, inshallah. 
messed up already, I knew. I had done something stupid, a mistake that my father would not have made because his father also didn't. I should have known to keep my intimacies with each of my women separate. I should not have asked Akimi to call Chiasa for me, even though Akimi enjoyed calling Chiasa on her own and for herself. I should not have tried to have an intimate conversation with Chiasa while being intimate with my wife and becoming overwhelmed by powerful desire. This incredible urge could also be brought on by Chiasa. What if I was in the midst of and the thick of that urge toward Chiasa? Would I make the same mistake and hurt and disappoint Akimi? A real man had a duty to make his women feel good all over, but it should be done in a private space. One wife receiving all of my attention and desires at a time. A man who disturbs the peace in his home is a fool. Only a fool would disturb his women's peace because their peace is his own. If I had the urge without the love, it would be nothing to me. It would be easy to avoid, resist, and forget. While ignoring the sexual urges I definitely have towards Yasa, the love and feelings that I had for her were mounting instead of lessening. By not seeing Chiasa or calling her up repeatedly, I was avoiding the fact that when and if I saw her again, I would definitely make her mine. I got up from my student seat to ease out to the phone booth. I would use my phone card to call Chiasa and apologize and set things right. I wanted to listen first and hear from her what she wanted. Maybe I was bugging. Maybe she would say, yeah, I felt a little something for you, but I gotta go fly my planes, ride my horses and fight. I'm a soldier for hire, remember? I'm not leaving Japan. What for? Yes, very good class. I want to introduce you to someone. We have a guest today, Professor Dong Hua announced. All 57 students turned to look back my way. Tell them your name, please, my young friend from America. Don't worry, they all speak at least basic English and will enjoy the opportunity to practice the language with a fluent speaker. On the spot, off guard, and under close observation, I ran my hand over my Caesar. Step down to the front, please, the professor asked me in the form of an announcement. I stepped down to the front. Your name? Midnight, I answered. The students began to murmur. Where are you coming from? He asked. I came to Korea from Japan, I answered. Are you Japanese? He asked sarcastically. The entire class burst into laughter and a more relaxed feeling began swirling in the air. Nah, I said, and cut the professor a mean look. Well then, he said, enjoying his position. Before Japan, I came from Brooklyn, New York, I said. Do you mind answering some questions, the professor asked. It's too late to ask me that, I said, and the students laughed again. So go ahead, I told him. I mean for my students to feel free to ask some questions, he said in English, and then spoke some Korean. Okay, he said. 
and pointed to a female student. She stood up. Do you know Whitney Houston? She asked me. The class laughed. One male student scolded her in Korean. Not personally, I responded. What about Eddie Murphy? Another student asked me. Then the same male student who scolded the other girl said, No, you idiots. Midnight is not an entertainer. He is an athlete. What sport do you play? He asked me. Basketball, I answered. Are you any good? Another male asked me. I can take on any of you. No problem, I said. It was true, but I was really joking with them since they were joking with me. Oohs and ahs and two guys jumped up. Challenge, one of them called out. The professor interrupted sternly. This is university-level history. I meant for my students to ask you smarter questions. I am sorry to you, my friend, he said sincerely. It's no problem, I told him, eager to ease out of the spotlight. But the professor began scolding his students in Korean first, and then he switched to speaking in English. What about the challenger, which blew up at the beginning of this year? This had a deep effect on America and American science. Isn't anyone interested in hearing comments about that? What about the Chernobyl nuclear power plant explosion that leaked active radiation into the environment? How do South Korean students feel about the nuclear threat and the nuclear arms race coming from even as close as North Korea? And what does our guest Midnight think? His class became completely silent. We could have seized the opportunity to have meaningful conversation, the professor said in English first, and then swiftly switched to Korean, I assume to translate the same thing. Every Korean male will have to perform his military service. South Korean men will serve a mandatory three years. North Korean men will serve a mandatory 10 years. These are the issues that will affect all of you, that we discuss each time that we meet here for classes. What about the very recent bombing of the North African country, Libya? But the professor had no takers. Upset, he dismissed his class, a line formed before him of bowing, apologizing students. One by one, they stepped up in a display of respect for their teacher. Meanwhile, a small crowd of students formed around me. Do you have Nintendo? Which is better, Super Mario or Zelda? Not Nintendo. Sega Genesis. It's American-made. Nintendo is from Japan, one student said. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite song? Do you have a girlfriend? One bare-legged, pretty Korean girl in a short skirt with killer eyes asked me aloud. Then everyone stopped talking to listen for my answer, even the professor. I have a wife. I'm married, I said. They all began to clap. Is she American? Another girl asked. No, she's Korean, I answered, surprising myself. There was a chorus of oohs and low murmurs. She's Professor Donghua's niece, I added, purposely to show him not to put me on the spot unless he wanted to be exposed and placed on the spot himself. I'm not one of his students, so the professor should stop testing me. The students all looked toward their professor for confirmation. Song Shimin, they all shouted. He was looking back at them, and for the first time, he was without words basic ones or fancy ones. 
and I love her a lot. She's beautiful, I told her. Then turned to the professor and said, Uncle Donghua, I'm stepping out to find a phone booth. I'll be back. I'll walk you, the pretty girl offered me, and began to move my way. Then two males escorted her, escorting me. Now I knew where the phone booth was located. However, the students never left my side, and three turned into six, and six turned into nine. Not one of them asked me any of those current events, history, or science questions that Professor Donghua had urged them to ask. Instead, they asked about Run DMC. In the back of a building, ten male students eagerly showed me their breakdancing moves. They battled one another, pumping Apache and danced to the drummer's beat, and got more lively on a track that I have never heard before called Hot Potato. They were nice with their skills. I checked one kid so nice it seemed like he had defeated gravity as he held his pose mid-air. I thought of the boys on my Brooklyn block and in all the boroughs of New York. I thought about Daquan and his brothers, too. Could they ever know how their style and art was moving across the globe so strong that these kids were at least as good as any hood cats? The leader of the breakdancing crew named himself Black Sea. After they rocked, he shot straight over to me and introduced himself. He said, Midnight great name. After he ran a style check on me, he followed me around. Rather, he showed me around as he followed me. I asked him what he was studying. He answered, physics, third year, and made me lean back some. It goes together, physics and breakdancing. You see what I mean, he said. In the huge, spotless gym, we got a game up. The dancers broke out and the ballers stepped up. They were eager and unafraid. I liked that. After game time, they offered me food and water in their immaculate cafeteria. When I refused, they gasped. I sat down with them. It seemed like they thought it was the thing for me to do. They ate and talked a lot to me and among themselves. When their questions led to me telling them I'm Muslim, a silence fell on the table. When I explained about Ramadan, they gasped and moaned, and one girl said, You must be really hungry. Then one girl stupidly added that she heard that all Africans were starving like that. He's not African, one male student called out. He's American. Then someone else shouted, Those two down. He's African-American. Certain things caught my eyes and ears. How the students clicked up according to their year freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, also how the Korean males interacted and got along. When I was chilling with a handful of seniors, about 15 freshmen flew by, stopped in their tracks, and bowed down to their seniors. There was no joking or laughing on those matters for them. There were levels that everyone respected, joke among their same age peers, but bow down to their elders even if they were only one year older they asked my age I didn't tell them made them guess instead and refused to confirm either way we ended up in the weight room with Black Sea and nine other guys who weren't around when we first started out we had a push-up competition and it was hilarious watching their arms legs and chests collapse no competition whatsoever 
When Black Sea showed me the way to Professor Dong Hua's office, there was a small crowd of female students standing outside. That same girl, the pretty one with the miniskirt and tight tee and heels and the killer eyes, was among them. She approached me and Black Sea. I moved past her and went in to check with the professor. Long day, he said. Yeah. Are you working late? I asked him. It was 5 p.m. I'll be wrapping up soon. We can share some dinner together. Black Sea and the pretty girl knocked and entered. Dinner and karaoke, Black Sea offered. Listen, let's set that up for tomorrow night, same time. Hope you don't mind. That would be better for me. I have to take care of a few things, I told him. Do you know your way back? The professor asked me. I'm good. I'll stop by to check my wife later. Is that all right with you? Okay. See you then. Be sure to eat something. This is Korea. We don't eat alone. Black Sea showed me to the shuttle. I was out. I wanted to get back to Baraka to clean myself up for the Maghrib prayer. And after this afternoon's unexpected workout, I was looking forward to arriving back just at the right time for breaking my fast properly and alone. And of course, for taking my run on the beach.